gutta butter, gutta butter, gutta butter. Butter. <laughs> okay. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Okay, you sound great. <laughs> you too. Welcome back to Match Volume. We've got a fantastic show for you today. We always have a fantastic show for you. Always. Today we're going to take a deep dive into the world of sports and politics. We have an interview with one of the world's leading scholars on the sociology of sports, race, politics, and culture. Dr. Ben Carrington. The sniff of the plantation, as we, we might say. That kind of sense of black athletes being owned by owners. I mean, even the, the phrases that we use, the terms the owners. I think that kind of shows the hidden undercurrent of how sports have always been racially charged, and especially in America. He spoke with our reporter, Nicholas Burlett, about his take on the Colin Kaepernick NFL saga. They also get into some of the underlying power structures that influence how we perceive sports and pop culture. Okay, that's similar territory to our earlier conversation with Chenjirai Kumanyika. Yes. For those of you who have been following along. The match volume aficionados (laughs) out there. But first, Tracy, tell us who you talked to this week. Well, I spoke with veteran journalist Jamel Hill, formerly of ESPN. She actually hosted two shows on the network, Mm -hmm. Sports Center and His and Hers. Jamel recently left that gig after 12 years and is now a columnist for The Atlantic. And her new podcast, Unbothered, will begin airing on Spotify in April. Without further ado, here's that conversation. You're from Detroit, but you recently busted a move to L.A.? Yep, uh, this is true. Um, Now, granted, I, I haven't lived in Detroit in... Oof, I guess it might be going on 20 years now. Um, but yeah, I, I moved here to L.A. from D.C. Before D.C., I was in Connecticut cause, since I was still at ESPN. So uh, in 2018, I actually lived in three different cities. But L.A. is definitely a place I hope to call home for the next uh, several years. The transition, honestly, has been great. Um, with all the things that I'm doing, this was the perfect place to be. It was a big reason why I decided to move here, uh, you know, in addition to working for The Atlantic and having the, uh, my podcast that will start on, on Spotify in April. Um, me and uh, my best friend from college, we also started a production company. And as anyone in L.A. knows that if you do that, and especially if you want to dig deeper into producing content for film and television, you kind of have to be in Los Angeles. So. Talk to me about what led you to the craft of journalism. Well, it was a few things. Um, one, uh, especially sports in particular. I, I was um, the neighborhood tomboy. Uh, I also uh, enjoyed watching sports, but I also loved to read. And, um, you know, back in those olden times, we didn't have Google. So if you wanted to follow your sports teams, you had to read the newspapers. So that's how I kind of developed a love of, of newspapers. And um, I was always naturally curious. Uh, I think for any journalist, you have to know why things work the way they do or um, want to know how things kind of come together. And that was always me as well. So it's just I just kind of combined all the things that I wanted and um, or all the things that I guess were a knack of mine and, and chose to pursue journalism. I mean, I'm very lucky because I decided that I wanted to do this in in high school. And for most people, you may go through two or three career choices before you actually settle on something that you want to do for the rest of your life. But I was lucky because, you know, the moment I started um, getting involved in journalism, it was a lifelong pursuit. Tell me some of the steps that you took to building your career. 
Well, uh, I know that, um, you know, for a lot of young people, everything looks like it happened so fast. Uh, but that's not the case. I mean, this is my 21st professional year in journalism. So, uh, you know, I majored in journalism at, at Michigan State. I had five internships while I was in college. Um, before I even got to ESPN, I had a full-fledged uh, print newspaper career. You know, I worked in Raleigh, I worked in Detroit, I worked in Orlando, and I was at ESPN for 12 years. So what I always try to tell and emphasize to young people is that this is a truly step-by-step process. All the people you may see on ESPN who whose careers you want to emulate, they didn't wake up on ESPN. They had to put in a lot of work. And a lot of those early years as you're developing, you spend a lot of time doing things that you probably don't want to do when you imagine yourself being a sports journalist. But that's all a part of the learning process and this, um, you know, collective experience that that you build. And if you want to get to jobs like at ESPN or where I am at the Atlantic, there's just a certain uh, level of experience that you have to have. So for me, I was just very fortunate that early on it was drilled into me to, to get internships, to be aggressive, to be persistent. And it was the foundation and the reason why I've been able to kind of build my career out the way that I have. You mentioned ESPN, where you spent a large portion of your career. Talk to me about your time there, and then more specifically, what it was like for you navigating the sports journalism world as a black woman. Well, ESPN is is very different um, than anything I've experienced or probably will experience in my career because it's the preeminent sports media brand in our country. And it's a destination place for everybody. ESPN has a collection of dream jobs that everybody wants. And I think about the journalist I was when I got to ESPN in 2006 and the journalist I was when I left um, last September in 2018. And those are dramatically different journalists. Um, I came in, and for all the things that I already knew, uh, ESPN expanded on, and there were a lot of other things I added to my toolbox while I was there. You know, I pretty much came in with a print mentality. They hired me to be an ESPN.com columnist. I thought of myself only as a writer. But eventually, as my television role expanded, then I became a broadcaster. Then I became an anchor, hosted Sports Center, um, also did podcast while I was there. I did a podcast while I was there. Did digital stuff. So I became much more versatile uh, being at ESPN. Um, I think there were two things I kind of had to get adjusted to there. One is the fact that the nature of the platform is so huge that you become a celebrity, for lack of a better way to put it. And uh, being a celebrity journalist is a little odd um, because for so long in my career, you know, I've been told by people with more experience and just the nature of the profession is that you are not the story. But as people see that if you're on ESPN and you say something, it not it becomes Jamel Hill of ESPN said, right? So you become a part of whatever it is you say and a part of the story itself. And it's the first time my salary had been reported on, not always accurately, but uh, so you have to go through that, that people are digging into your life in different ways that if you're not accustomed to that, it can be kind of uh, jarring. Um, you know, the other part of it is that there's a lot of very talented people that work at ESPN, and it's a constant fight for real estate. And... There's not a lot of real estate to go around. It's only so many people that can have shows. So I felt really blessed and fortunate, the fact that I had two shows at ESPN. Um, and so I think there was, you know, there's, you know, typical kind of corporate dynamics that you go through as, you know, a woman of color, as a black woman uh, that, of course, you know, I, I experienced and 
um, you know, there were, I think there was a point there where I wondered how long, halfway through, like five, six years in, I wondered how long I would be at ESPN just because from a television standpoint, there weren't a lot of people like me with my skill set on television, um, just in the sense that, you know, I wasn't a traditional anchor. I came from, you know, the print side of things and the opinion side of things. So there weren't a lot of sports shows, period, both at ESPN or at other networks where they were building shows around women where the show was driven by their opinion. So that became, um, you know, kind of tricky because a lot of times in television, they only go with things that are already successful. And so um, with that not having been a proven commodity, I think it probably took a while for me to grow on people um, in the building and for them to understand that, you know, I was the type of person that you could build a show around my opinion. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was certainly, um, you know, some different challenges I had to go through. But um, the successes far outweighed what those challenges were. You kicked down some major doors and listening to you talk about the trajectory of your career and the way that you built it out at ESPN and and becoming a multimedia journalist. Talk to me about how valuable that is, especially in this particular media landscape right now. In many ways, I feel sorry for the younger journalists that are coming up because they're asked to do so many things. And, you know, when I was coming out of college, my focus was, again, print newspapers. That was it. So that means I basically just had to know how to write. But these days, you have to know how to not just write, but be on television, radio, podcasting, digital, edit video. Like, there's many more skills required because as our business is shrinking, that's putting more pressure on journalists to be and to do everything for everyone. And so um, I think that's just really how the landscape has changed. And it's changed in some good ways in the sense that there are far more outlets um, that young journalists uh, can work for. And, you know, with the digital explosion, that leaves a lot of room for creativity or the fact that people are able to get into this business through a YouTube channel. Like, that, those avenues did not exist when um, I was first cutting my teeth in this industry. So there's some positives, there's some drawbacks. Uh, but I just think in general, now you have to be a utility player to be a journalist. But I like to try to remind um, younger journalists of this in particular, the the technology changes, but the method does not, as in the foundation of the craft does not change. We are still the five W's, who, what, when, why, where. That's still us. And so you have to be able to tell people things they don't know, get information they don't want to tell you. Right? And if you can do those things, you can figure out the platform and the medium and the method in which you deliver it to consumers. So, um, you know, uh, a thousand years ago, it was a stone tablet. Today, it's social media. All right. And 500 years from now, it'll be something else. But you have to be able to understand the basics of how to gather information. The Kaepernick settlement. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I wrote about this for The Atlantic, and I know there's mixed opinions about whether or not he should have taken a settlement. There are some people who are disappointed who wanted the NFL to be aired out in a trial. And I understand that, but I think this is a huge victory for him and a huge victory for players. People have to understand the NFL has a long history of pummeling people in court. Uh, Tom Brady, who is arguably the face of the NFL, or at least one of the major faces, even he could not beat the NFL. All right, He had to serve his four-game suspension for Deflategate. 
we've seen it happen countless, countless times uh, that that's where they have a heavy upper hand. The fact that they wanted to settle this and resolve these grievances, to me, is every every bit of an admission that they were wrong. They did not want probably certain sensitive information to come out in court because all of a sudden emails, you know, uh, communiques, text messages, that's all under the discovery process. So I'm sure they probably didn't want people to know what owners were really saying about Colin Kaepernick because the last thing that they wanted their label, their league to be labeled as is racist. And we already saw in the reporting leading up to the settlement just how damaging some of their comments could be. I mean, the late owner, uh, uh, Steve or Bob McNair, excuse me, with the Houston Texans, when he said when he called uh, uh, NFL players inmates, that had a huge reverberation across the league. His best player, DeAndre Hopkins, walked out of practice when he heard what he said. So the NFL didn't want more of that. uh, And they want this story to go away. And while arrogantly they went into this thinking Colin Kaepernick had no chance, but once a judge decided, when they tried to get the uh, the case thrown out and a judge decided that Colin Kaepernick had proven that he had enough receipts for this to continue, that's when they got worried. And so to me, Colin Ka- Kaepernick did something that was historical and monumental because he got the NFL to kneel. You mentioned being a celebrity journalist, which, uh, you know, is very uncomfortable for you. You were recently catapulted into the spotlight right after Charlottesville when you made a comment about uh, 45 being a white supremacist. Talk to me about what that was like for you, being in the crosshairs of the president of the United States. Uh, yeah, it is pretty interesting because the, the, the last two presidents have known me for very different reasons because <laughs> I was able to, when uh, former President Obama was in office, I was able to go to the White House twice and he was a big avid fan of ESPN and he watched um, my shows. And so that was like a huge compliment and something I still, um, you know, sort of think about and is very surreal to me. Fast forward to the next president who thought I was the reason that ESPN's ratings were tanking and his administration wanted to see me fired. Honestly, the president attacking me and and again, uh, you know, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders saying I deserve to be fired. It really didn't impact me that much, just in the sense that uh, I think for most journalists, you sort of live for the day that City Hall comes after you. This is a profession built on disruption. Um, We are supposed to hold people in power accountable. And while people, uh, Charlottesville was certainly an emotional experience for all Americans. The thing is, when I called him a white supremacist, I was not saying that out of emotion. I was saying it based off facts that I think have proven me to be right. And um, you know, it was a little surreal having, uh, having you know, my platform explode the way that it did uh, because, you know, obviously people are used to seeing me in the sports sphere. But to all of a sudden, you know, people who didn't even watch ESPN or people who never watched my show kind of know who I was. It was that's humbling. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. But, um, you know, I, I think <laughs> and I know I'm not the only person that feels this way. A lot of times they say, um and, you know, if people, I think, have that have told me countless times that they derive some level of inspiration uh, from that, then you can tell who somebody is by who's their enemies. And so if that guy doesn't like me, really, I don't think it, 
is a reflection of who I am. <laughs> I'll say that much. You're such an inspiration as a black woman. To hear your voice and, and to feel represented in that way is huge. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit us at Match Volume, Jamel. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. That was columnist, podcast host, and sports journalist extraordinaire Jamel Hill in conversation with Tracy McGregor. Now, she is a badass, I must say. Yeah, I really enjoyed building with her. So authentic. And she's a lover of the craft of journalism, which I really appreciate in this day and age. Yeah. She took a lot of heat, you know, for that tweet about 45 being racist. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but she handled that skirmish like a champ. She's the real deal. Speaking her truth to power. Mm -hmm. Next up, we're going to continue the conversation on cultural studies and race in sports with USC's own sociologist, critical thinker, and former semi-professional soccer football player, I should say, <laughs> Dr. Ben Carrington. Before we get into sports, I want to talk to you about your study of rave culture. I find it so intriguing that it was the first thing you turned to in order to understand pop culture and social change. What did you find and what really inspired you to go into rave culture? Well, I, I studied um, back in the early 90s when I first went to university in, in the UK. I discovered this area called cultural studies. So in the 1970s, uh, a guy called Stuart Hall um, founded the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies at Birmingham University. And Stuart Hall and a number of the other students there were interested in, I guess, like the politics of popular culture. So those things that we tend not to see as being political. So when we talk about politics, we tend to think about Republicans and Democrats, mm -hmm. you know, the Democratic Party. So we, we understand politics with a big P, Trump and Pelosi and you know, the Senate, etc. But one of the things that Stuart Hall argued and a number of other important theorists coming out of the UK was that if we understand politics to be about power and identity and identity and belonging and how we act as we do and um, uh, the ways in which we kind of construct our lives and actually culture and popular culture is a really important part of that um, mm -hmm. most people listen to music and we, we play sports we you know, we, just, we just had the oscars recently um, and this takes up a big part of of our our daily lives and our passions and our identities so i kind of discovered this area called cultural studies and I read these theories that talked about how youth subcultures had died. So a lot of the theories around youth subcultures and forms of resistance were based upon, you know, the kind of classic post-war subcultures like the hippies and in England, the mods and the rockers. Right. And I was, I'm going to date myself here. I was 18 in 1991. And rave culture, that that's what was booming for teens yeah. at that time. I'd just come through this emergence of rave culture, which mm -hmm. is in the, this form of house music, yeah. which originates in Chicago and Detroit, mm -hmm. um, in, in gay and, and in black spaces, um, and then comes over to Europe. And you know, and it gets kind of taken up by kind of European DJs. And uh, you have this, what was called the rave scene, and big acid house raves uh, in England and across Europe. Uh, thousands, tens of thousands of young people go into these largely illegal warehouse raves. Um, and I just kind of lived through that, that period. And I got to university and I was being told by these academics that there were no youth subcultures anymore. And I was thinking, that's not quite true. I've just, you know, m me and 10,000 other people were, were driving around London looking for this illegal rave at midnight and dancing until six or seven o'clock in the morning. So I did an undergraduate dissertation, an undergraduate thesis when I was uh, 20, 21. 
And I titled it The End of Youth Subcultural Theory. And my argument was not that youth subcultures had died, but the youth subcultural theory was inadequate to explain what was going on. So I think that's one of the interesting things about theory is and, and why universities and these types of spaces are important. It's because it can provide a space for people to understand their own lived experiences and to talk back to the theory, but then to generate their own theory. So you mentioned you played a lot of sports growing up. Name one athlete in recent history that you think changed everything within the sports world. I'd have to say that Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. We could list a whole bunch of great athletes. Federer, LeBron, Tiger, etc. But I think Serena has, she's done a couple of things. So one is that she's been excellent in a sport where black folks aren't supposed to be excellent. Right. Although we've had uh, Arthur Ashen before, Arthur Ashen, Alfie Gibson. Um, for the most part, you know, tennis isn't read as quote a black sport. It's still its norms, its values. It's still very white. It's still very middle class. Unlike if you know you can maybe argue, you know, basketballs kind of gets read as being a black sport. So I think she's broken and pushed boundaries in, in that context. But I also think you know being a black female athlete, she's produced a new definition, a new type of physicality, a new a new trope, a new imagination that you can be a strong, successful, athletic, confident black female athlete and it's amazing how Serena's going to progress so um, f for me I think she's probably the most important contemporary athlete because of the range of barriers that she's broken and her development as a, as a person you know she's she's much more critically conscious now than she was even like 10 years ago and I think that's been a really kind of an important sea change on so many levels. As you categorize race in sports, how would you, which sport would you say is the most tolerant and versus least tolerant? Um, I'd actually say that all sports are racialized to different degrees. So I don't think it's really a case of which, and again, like, again, if we're, if we're looking at sports in terms of all of the levels, coaches, owners, the GMs, the front office, you know, the media, um, then most sports remain overwhelmingly white. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the interesting things that, so one of the discourses is that, quote, blacks dominate sports. There was a, there was a front page, quite an infamous front page of Sports Illustrated in 1997. And the, the front cover uh, had a photograph of four or five, looked like kind of a photo from the 1940s or 50s of these young, smiling white basketball players, male, mm -hmm. white males. And the headline was, whatever happened to the white athlete? Mm-hmm which implies that the white athlete's been pushed out, has been taken over. And, and, and it's, it's a sociologist. It's, if you look at participation figures, the group who participates most often in the greatest range of sports most frequently are white middle-class males. They play lacrosse, they, they ski, they, they sail, they play you know, softball, baseball. Golf, tennis. Golf, across the board. You, know, you look at the... So, it's in, what we find is that in the small number of sports, the entertainment sports, you know, ones that have a high vis visibility, there's a disproportionate number of blacks and, and black men in particular. So that kind of skews the, the discussion. The Donald Sterling um, you know, example here in, in LA, you know, obviously mm -hmm. he was the former owner of the LA Clippers. And that was quite a remarkable moment when he, you know, it emerged. I think TMZ kind of broke the story of one of these news outlets. Uh, that, you know, he'd made racially charged comments, racist comments about black players, Magic Johnson and others. Yeah, and uh, black fans too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he was so he was a good example of it. And it did invoke the kind of, the kind of, the, it had a, the sniff of the plantation, as we, we, we might say. That, you know, here's a white owner happy to use the bodies and labor of black players. Right. And he was wealthy from being an owner of the Clippers. Um, but didn't really like to associate with the blacks and had a concern that one of the, now, his girlfriend at the time, I think his mistress, you know, was maybe yeah. alleged, um, 
you know, was, uh, you know, had an interest in some of these black players. And so that kind of sense of black athletes being owned by teams and um, being owned by owners, I mean, even the, the phrases that we use, the terms, the owners, I think that kind of shows the kind of the, the kind of the hidden undercurrent of the, of the, of how sports have always been racially charged, and especially in America. I mean, we have to remember that most major U.S. sports were racially segregated until the 50s and 60s. One of the bigger political protests, so to speak, in sports has been not standing for the national anthem while it is being played prior to games. What are your thoughts on the action? I guess the first thing to say as a, as a, as a Brit, as a European, why did you play the national anthem before a game to begin with? So before we even get into the discussion as to whether or not he should stand for the national anthem, my first question is, why is there a national anthem being played before a game that has, that has no international teams? Like this is a game between the San Francisco 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys or the, the Clippers and, and, and the Golden State Warriors or, or USC and UCLA. Like wh- why, why is the national anthem being played at all? Because mo- yeah. in most of the other rest of the world, that, that anthem wouldn't be played. Like I, I support Liverpool football right. team. When Liverpool played Manchester United at the weekend, the national anthem was not played. It will be not. It will not be played tomorrow. When Liverpool play Watford, it will not be played at any single professional sports event anywhere in Britain. Rugby, cricket, soccer, around the world, unless the England national team are playing against Germany, then it makes sense to sing the national anthems. Like Kaepernick, a few players are out of NFL work. However, you know, Colin Kaepernick, all he did was not stand for a flag. There are other players out there that are coming back to the league after, you know, beating their wives or beating their girlfriends. You know, there are other people that knelt for the flag, but, um, you know, it's Colin Kaepernick who can't find a job at the moment. What do you think is causing that? Do you think it has to do with, you know, maybe messages from Donald Trump or the surrounding of Colin Kaepernick? Because there are NFL owners who have expressed interest in him but still have not signed him, you know, and do you have any opinion on that or as to why maybe Kaepernick can't find a job at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to place in the context of the the Trump administration and, you know, his attacks on the NFL. And he famously called the the, the players that were protesting sons of bitches. so there's been an explicit attack on, and especially black athletes. You know, Trump seems to signal out with with not Steph Curry or LeBron James. You know, Trump seems to have a particular problem with black athletes articulating their 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 politics, especially if it's against some of his policies. I, I don't actually think the NFL owners were that bothered about Kaepernick speaking out on those issues. I think what feared them the most, or what they became more most fearful about, um, as the as the protests continued, which helps to explain his exclusion was that the NFL players would begin to act like NBA players. And by that I mean, and going back to our example of Donald Sterling, you have to remember Donald Sterling was effectively stripped of ownership within 48 hours of that tape breaking. 48 hours, an owner is stripped of ownership. And that came about not because the other owners thought this is really outrageous that one of us is speaking badly about black people. It came about because Steph Curry and LeBron James made it really clear to the commissioner, you might not have not you might not have games come Wednesday. Like we're considering not playing. So you now have a choice. Like, do you want people to turn with those big contracts? Do you want people to turn on to watch the NBA games in the evening and see nobody out on court? Or do you want to get rid of this racist owner? And they were like, We're getting rid of the racist owner. I think that's very correct. Colin Coward, he mentioned the other day that in the eighties 
it was Magic and Larry Bird who revitalized the NBA. The NBA was in shreds before they came. And then it was, you know, Michael Jordan and his agent. And now it's LeBron and Rich Paul, his agent. So it's been agents and players really running the league more than commissioners and owners. Um, and one more topic, politics of sports, race, celebrity, and sports. These are the classes that you teach. What goes on in these classes? What do you discuss in these classes? And have students ever challenged your beliefs? My, my kind of personal beliefs are aren't particularly relevant when I'm teaching. I mean, they're relevant when I'm maybe writing an op-ed for the Guardian or Huffington Post. But one of the things I, I probably want the students to do is to think critically. And I want them to debunk, you know, this, this idea of debunking, it comes out of sociology, you know, to kind of look, to unveil the kind of potentials by which people lead their lives, the kind of the, the power structures, which often aren't visible, but are there shaping why do we support a certain team rather than another team? Why is there a new stadium being built in Inglewood? What's the politics behind that? What are the consequences for gentrification, for housing costs? Um, what are the transportation implications of that? Um, why is the LA Dodgers stadium where it is? Who gets dis displaced when stadiums are, are built where they are? Um, who gets to own teams? Who gets to pay play for teams? What, you know, all of the myriad of things that surround sport, the, the good and the bad, the ugly and the beautiful. So one of the things that I do in my classes is, is less about students challenging my beliefs, but I want them to think critically and independently. And, you know, I say to students when I, when I set exam questions or essay questions, um, students can, can come to an answer that's diametrically opposite to another student and you can both get an A. The question is, have you marshaled critical thinking and good evidence and data? Have you, have you reflexively engaged in some of your own assumptions that you hadn't really examined before? That was Professor Ben Carrington speaking with Match Volume contributor Nicholas Burlett. Dope dude. Yeah, I mean, I, it was interesting to hear his take on the whole national anthem controversy, you know? Yeah. I mean, really, why are we even singing the national anthem at a sporting event? I know. I mean, I it's weird. I'd never thought about it, but you don't often hear it from that perspective. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that's it for another episode of Match Volume a podcast of Annenberg Media at USC's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Be sure to check back next week. We're going to be discussing a new topic, immigration, but through sort of a different lens. A little-known event in Poland in the 1960s and how it mirrors what is happening at the border right now. Before we sign off, we'd like to thank Annenberg's own Mickey Turner for the Jamel Hill link. We'd also like to thank Willa Seidenberg and Kimson Albert for our theme music. I'm Tracy McGregor. And I'm John Reed. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show.